0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to class number six in our Boethius discussion, Consolation of Philosophy. We are approaching the end. This should be our penultimate class. Uh, no, check that. This will definitely be our penultimate class. Um, we're going to get through Prose one of Book five today. Um, so we'll leave uh, we'll leave the big conclusion for next week. Um, but we'll get through book four and the first section of book five here today. Uh, so that's going to be really great. Um, tonight's kind of where it gets real. Uh, you know, in a sense, the whole rest of the book has been kind of uh, build up uh, to this. And uh, where, we, uh, where we go tonight is, uh, uh, is like I said, kind of where it gets real and where he starts talking about the big picture. Um, so it's pretty exciting. Before we start, a really quick announcement. Um we are it is uh, approaching July now. <laughs> Jennifer asks if this is the first Mythgard class ever to be on schedule. You know, Jennifer, this has been much closer to schedule than normal, certainly. Um uh I have um You'll notice, I'm pretty sure I've gotten through 100% of my slides almost every single class in this one, which is certainly a rare occurrence. Uh, but again, it's kind of, you know, it's a different kind of uh, discussion and a different kind of book. So, you know, it's not exactly a fair comparison to our normal, our normal procedure. Anyway, alright, so, um, but as I was saying, quick announcement, it's almost the end of June, which means July is at hand, and so is our Hobbit Immersion Camp, which I'm super excited about. We have 66 chapters signed up across uh, the country, and a few in Canada, and uh, so across North America, I suppose I should say. And uh we are i'm uh, I am delighted we're gonna have uh you know we're looking at anywhere you know somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred uh kids involved in the program this summer. Uh, so it's gonna be really cool and in fact, uh if you go to our uh, website, I'll share that here uh University dot org. As I go back to the main page and show you how to get here, I have to go to signumuniversity.org and then scroll down just a little bit. There it is, the Hobbit Immersion Camp page. And you click there, and it takes you back to our page. If you scroll down on the page, you can see our cool new interactive map, which shows you where all of our individual chapters are located. So if you would like to join one of the chapters, you can check it out and look and see... um, if there's one nearby you, if there is awesome, you know, go, uh, you know, go to the library. Most of them are libraries, public libraries. Um, go there, talk to them, check it out, uh, and, uh, and see if you can get your, uh, kids or the kids, you know, plugged in. Um, if you are not, uh, near one, um, or, uh, if, uh, like uh, poor lady gun in, uh, in the Twitch chat there, you, uh, you couldn't get any libraries in Kansas uh, to pay attention to you. And Lady Gun, can I just point out? Look at this. Look at this sad gap in the middle of the country. Right? We really need chapters in Kansas next year. That's totally. That's obvious. I mean, it's one of the most obvious things when you look at the map, right? Um, but anyway, uh, if uh, if 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 you are not near a campsite. Uh, if you're not near one of our chapters, you can still totally participate. So if you have kids who would like to participate, you know, just on your own, within your own house, you can totally do that. Um, there's no reason, you know, it's, it's it's not tied to libraries explicitly. If you wanted to get a couple families, you know, like your kids and your, your kids' friends, right, and bring them together and do a chapter in your own house, you can totally do that. Um, so if you're going to bring together a group of people, go ahead and fill out the group uh, thing if you're going to do it individually, you can fill out the family registration. Again, there are links to these up here. The library registration form. This is for groups. Anybody can do it, not just libraries. And the family registration and permission form. If you're just going to do it on your own, uh, you can do it there. Um, so we don't want anybody to be left out who wants to who wants to contribute. Just go ahead and go ahead and sign up. It'll be cool. It'll be fun. You know, it's designed uh, to work together with libraries, but you know, it's not. Uh, Absolutely essential. And Tony, note, we didn't end up getting any European ones this year. One of the things I realized, we started this up kind of late in the, I mean, slightly late in the game anyway. Um, kind of far in advance for me, but you know, these are librarians we're talking about and librarians are way more organized than I am as a rule. Uh, so, uh, a lot of people, libraries and things had already made plans and stuff for the summer. We're going to be a little bit more on the ball next year and we'll be uh, getting things together earlier. So I hope to persuade some Europeans to, uh, uh, to, uh, to join us next year. Cause it's awesome. Um, and actually our classes, our live classes are going to be taught from Europe. Uh, uh, DMA Binkley, our teacher is uh, actually going to be teaching, uh, from Rome, uh, which is pretty fun. Uh, so <laughs> she's usually, she lives in Alaska, but she's going to be in Rome during the, uh, uh, during the, 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 the class. So, uh, she's, she's never in my time zone, but she's off in the other direction this time. Anyway, uh, should be, uh, uh should be really great, so I just wanted to encourage everybody to look into this. There is still time we're getting close you know we're only a few weeks away now, but there is still time uh to get uh to get signed up uh and to participate uh if you would still like to. The other thing is uh don't forget we're you know this is this being the penultimate class of uh of boethius it's time to start. Thinking towards our next Mythgard Academy discussion, and that is going to be on the Treason of Isengard, of course. We're going to return to the history of the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, series. Having done the Return of the Shadow before, we're going to do the Treason of Isengard and look as the Lord of the Rings continues to grow and develop as Tolkien is going to discover things like... Rohan in Gondor, right? At Lothlorien. Uh, places that were, you know, not even conception in his mind, clearly, when he began the story at the beginning. Um, anyway, it's going to be great, great fun. Uh, there's still time, right? If you haven't read The Return of the Shadow and you're not ready for class, there's still time, right? You can go back and read. Uh, you can review the um, uh, the sessions that we did on that. Um, I, um, I, I really encourage... Uh, uh, us to begin that. Do I have a date yet said Tomas? Not exactly a date per se, um, but um, but it should be it should be in July. Um, I'm still I'm still kind of debating that, but we'll have the web page and the schedule up soon, um, for, so you guys can sign up for the Treason of Isengard. But it's only a matter of a few weeks away, so if you want to start some advanced reading of the Treason of Isengard, there's time. Uh, if you uh, uh, if you um, wanted to, again, if you wanted to go back and, and, and read the Return of the Shadow to catch up with us, there's still time for that too. So, all right, let us plunge into, uh, Boethius and the Consolation of Philosophy. Now I have to start off with an apology. Um, uh, I am, uh, traveling tomorrow again, uh, with my family this time. And, um, uh, so it's not conference travel, but family travel this time. And, uh, uh, today is one of those, like, pre-travel days where, like, my to-do list was, like, a, a million things long, and I ran out of time. Um, Tom Hillman has an awesome lingering on the Latin for us today, and I totally just ran out of time. Like, I just didn't have time to put it on up on slides. Uh, so I'm going to have to hold on to that, and we'll do it next time. Maybe we'll get a, a double bonus next time, or, or, or we can do it next... Uh, we can just do that one next time. Um, but it's really cool. It's about one of the poems in Book 3, and it... Um, uh, and it has a uh, it has a Tolkien punchline, so okay, a Tolkienian punchline, uh, which uh, which should be really fun. So, uh, so I promise we're not I'm not we're not going to lose it. We're just we we are immediately going to uh, delay. So I hope that you will all be able with uh, being fortified uh, by the philosophy that we learned last week uh, that you will all be fortified to endure the misfortune of uh, of uh, waiting for another week uh, for that. So anyway, I again and I, so I apologize to everybody, but we'll uh we'll definitely we'll definitely get back to that next time. With that said then, let's jump straight into book four. So first a reminder about um where we uh where we were. Um so okay. Kind of summarize the beginning of book four that we talked about last time a little bit, right? Basically Lady Philosophy was saying If we keep our priorities straight, right? If we can discern between things appropriately, then the picture looks completely different, right? That picture that Boethius was painting in book one, not only of his personal misfortunes, but of the problem of evil, right? All begins to look very different. Um, Why do bad things happen to good people? Answer, they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people, right? Why do the bad guys win? The bad guys never win, right? The bad guys are always weak, and, you know, the the, the evil are always weak, and the virtuous are always strong. Always, right? There's no question about that. All fortune is good fortune, right? So these are the conclusions that she came to, and you'll remember our discussion about those next time. What I want to remind you of especially is where Boethius ended, right? That is the Boethius character, Ended the last slide that we looked at last time. The sort of transitional moment there in the middle of Book Four, as we uh, uh, shift into a different gear, as Lady Philosophy is going to explicitly say we're shifting into a different gear. Oh, okay, she's not going to use that metaphor, of course, uh, but she's going to say things to that effect. Um, he's uh, Boethi, the, Bo- the Boethius character's response is really fascinating. Right. On the one hand, he says, OK, I follow your arguments and I totally agree. You're absolutely right. I'm I'm completely buying what you've said. Right. All fortune is good fortune. Uh, bad things don't happen to good people. Uh, bad guys never win. Right. I, I see all of those things. But but I, have, I still have a, a question. Right. And my question is, why do bad things seem to happen to people, right? I mean, he seems to—he seems to be like, okay, yeah, but like, still, like, come on, like, seriously, though. Why is fortune still so chaotic, right? Why do apparently unjust things seem to happen all over the place, right? Uh, in other words, he's—he's—he's—he's—he he, essentially says, "I see how, from you know, the big picture, right? Looking at you know, thinking in terms of ultimate good, and and you know, what does it really mean? You know, when we talk about bad things happening. What really is?" a good thing happening and a bad thing happening, right? And so when we're thinking about ultimate good, right, you know, things look different. know, um, we talk about winning, right, bad guys winning, right, or bad guys being strong. Well, you know, how are we defining strong? How are we defining winning? If we define winning in terms of getting what you want, what you really want, then, of course, bad guys never win. Oh, you know, he's like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But things are still chaotic all over the place, right? Why is there apparent injustice? He seems to come back almost straight back to book one. And says basically, okay, again, I get all of those things, but it doesn't really solve all the problems, right? When I look around the world, it still doesn't make sense. I can't make sense out of it, right? Um, you know, he's like, look, like, I mean, okay, I get, I get it. All fortune is good fortune, that's all good, but come on now, let's be real. We would all prefer to have what normal people call good fortune. Right. I mean, everybody wealthy, you know, like the wealthy and the poor, the virtuous and the and the wicked, everybody would really rather be comfortable and happy than, you know, miserable and oppressed. Uh, and so why why is there a disconnection between those outcomes, even again, even acknowledging all the stuff about the goods of fortune and how it doesn't lead you to ultimate happiness and all that kind of thing. But still. Right. Why should there be so much chaos? Um, uh, so, um, tonight we're going to get to her answer. And so in answering it, that's where she's going to take things to a, to a different place. Um, yeah, Karita summarizes, I get it, but I still feel like there is bad help. Yeah, essentially, essentially, um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, good. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Good. Yeah, Stephen has another really good synopsis. He says, logically, the argument holds. So why doesn't it seem to match our observations? Right? Why is our experience of the world still so different from that? Um, Why can't we see this? Good. All right. So she's going to answer that question. So let's look at um, her her immediate response. It is no wonder, philosophy answered, that a situation should seem random and confused when its principle of order is not understood. But although you do not know why things are as they are, still you cannot doubt that in a world ruled by a good governor, all things do happen justly. So it's almost, again, it's, it's like in book one where she sort of grants his premises and you know it's here she's coming back she's like remember remember where you started because remember Boethius's entire um, entire problem at the beginning like the core of his problem was not just that he saw injustice all over the place right That wouldn't be a problem philosophically. I mean it might suck but it wouldn't be a problem if he didn't also perceive that there was order. Right, so it is his simultaneous conviction that a God is in control, and uh, you know everything hap- seems to happen for a reason, and everything is ordered by a just and good God, and yet there seems to be all this, un- in, you know, there's all this injustice all over the place. It's those two things that created for Boethius the problem of evil. So what she brings him back, her first response here is to bring him back to first principles. Right, it's no wonder that a situation should seem random and confused when its principle of order is not understood. But although you do not know why things are as they are, still you cannot doubt that in a world ruled by a good governor, all things do happen justly. Right? So, okay. So if, on the one hand, you know that God is just and the world is ordered, and on the other hand, it looks like things are unjust, maybe you should question that latter observation. Right? That's her... That this whole fortune thing this whole chaotic fortune, why... Because remember the basis of their argument, like, F- F- lady philosophy granted the arbitrariness of fortune, right? She's like, that's an intrinsic element of fortune, right? She's arbitrary, right? She's just there blindfold and turning her wheel. Okay. Um, but now she's saying, okay, if we back up with that, right? If we back up from that sum, we'll see actually... It might not really look the same if we think about things from a wider perspective, but a different kind of perspective. It's it's a different it's a different sort of widening uh, than she was doing you know, than she was talking about last week. Um, yeah. Um, cool. Uh, okay. And yes, Jennifer, you're absolutely right. Um, Jennifer Pope says Boethius seems to be coming at this argument in exactly the opposite way uh, from what modern people do. Um, mo- you know, most modern people would say things are bad, therefore God must be bad or absent. He says God is good. Things must actually be good. We just need to look more closely. Certainly, again, he accepts that that is not a question. The, the existence of God. And the goodness of God are fundamental premises that he's bringing in, right, from Plato and Aristotle. They're, they're part of the givens that he accepts in this whole thing from the beginning. Um, and I think that it's important to sort of reckon, even if you don't share that premise, right, the important thing is to follow the argument, right? Grant it, just for argument's sake, grant it, um, because I do think one of the things that emerges from this is a lot of, there are a lot of times people will talk about the problem of of evil as if it just is very, very simply a proof of the absence or badness of God, right? Um, Boethius' argument, in part, one way I think to summarize Boethius' argument about this is to say it might not be that simple, right? Um, Maybe we need to think a little bit more carefully about the assumptions that we're making when we state the simplified problem of evil. And that's what Lady Philosophy is going to go on to do by encouraging us to think about God and God's perspective, which is the theme of tonight's discussion. So, okay. She then pauses for a little consumer warning, right? Then she smiled a little and said... You are asking about the greatest of all mysteries, one which can hardly be fully explained. This problem is such that when one doubt is cleared up, many more arise like the heads of the hydra and continue to spring up unless they are checked by the most active fire of the mind. Among the many questions raised by this problem are these, the simplicity of providence, the course of fate, unforeseeable chance, divine knowledge and predestination, and free will. You yourself know how difficult these questions are, but since it is part of your medicine to know these things, I shall try to say something about them, even though our time is short. But you will have to do without the pleasure of verse for a while, as I put together the pattern of my argument. Okay, so she's warning you, much prose to come, right? But, okay, so we're approaching the greatest of all mysteries, she acknowledges, right? Um, don't expect that all of these things can be fully Explained. Uh, now, to some, that might seem like a cop out. I think that saying that's a cop out is illogical, as Boethius is going to, in fact, argue. Uh, the one thing that you uh, w- can give to Lady Philosophy is that although she says, although she does say, these things are not all knowable by us, she never just waves her hand and says, we have to have faith in a kind of a vague modern way that modern people use that word. Um, instead, she says, let us examine logically why it is a logical necessity that we cannot know all of these things and we cannot fully explain this stuff. But that we're going to do next week. So don't worry about that right now. Um, we're going to get there. Uh, but she just acknowledges from the beginning, some of this stuff is not going to make perfect sense. And that is going to have to be okay. So just, she's just sort of throwing that out there is a little bit of a warning. Right, And also, brace yourself, because we're not going to get poetry for a while. <laughs> okay. All right. So here she introduces a crucial distinction. A distinction which defines the vocabulary used in theological circles for 1,500 years. We're still using it. Okay. Then as though she were making a new beginning, philosophy explains. The generation of all things, and the whole course of mutable natures, and of whatever is in any way subject to change, take their causes, order, and forms from the unchanging mind of God. Okay, now this, of course, is just a restatement of something she's already said, right? She's been talking about God as the source. Of all things, and remember also another premise that she's using, which of course is, is 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 based on Aristotelian and Platonic philosophy, is that things start off perfect, and the imperfect comes from the perfect. Right? If something is you know if, if something is imperfect, it almost proves something more perfect than it came beforehand. Right? That is the natural order of things. Um, so the idea that the perfect mind of God is the ultimate source of things has been a premise for a while. Right? Um, so all things, the whole course of mutable natures and of whatever is in any way subject to change. Exactly, Brandon, the unmoved mover. That's exactly it. Um, uh, I'll take th- their causes, order, and forms from the unchanging mind of God. This divine mind established the manifold rules by which all things are governed, while it remained in the secure castle of its own simplicity. Two Functions, therefore, of the mind of God she is pointing to, right? On the one hand, the simplicity of the mind of God, the unity of the mind of God. The mind of God is not divided. It doesn't go part by part. It is completely unified. Um, why is it exactly that when I am busy... Driving my kids around, and preparing dinner, and answering people's emails, and communicating with my Signum staff, I forget to buy the bus tickets for tomorrow. Just to choose a random example, right? Why does that happen? Because my mind is not simple, right? I my my consciousness, my mind is focusing on one thing at a time in this long today apparently endless series of things, right? point by point by point by point, and I can't think about them all at the same time. Right? My mind is not simple. My mind, my consciousness is fragmented, and of course it's fragmented in many ways. Uh, <laughs> in my case, some more than usual. But uh, but over time, right, at the very least. Um, that is one way of thinking about what Lady Philosophy is talking about when she says, when she talks about the simplicity of the, the, it's not simple-minded in the modern sense, right? It's simple and unified. God is able to conceive of all things simultaneously, right? Um, Even the word simultaneous is misleading, Right. Because that suggests a relationship to time, which God's mind does not have. We'll get there more later. She's going to talk about the relationship between God and time uh, in more detail uh, later on. Um, so but, but anyways, so just for now, that um, uh, that concept of simplicity is the, is, is the one really important element. But notice there's another thing. Right this divine mind established the manifold rules by which all things are governed while it remained in the secure castle of its own simplicity while it itself remains simple it lays out a set of rules by which all of the finite things which are going to be dispersed through time and space are going to be governed right so it establishes the rules For how finite things are going to, how concrete events are going to unfold, remaining itself simple. Those are the two elements of the divine mind, the two workings of the divine mind that she describes here. When this government is regarded as belonging to the purity of the divine mind, it is called providence. But when it is considered with reference to the things which it moves and governs, it has, from very early times, been called fate. Those are the two big, important vocabulary terms here. Providence and fate. Now, again, the point that she's making, they're the same thing. Or rather, they're different ways of thinking about the same thing. They are both of them. Both providence and fate are words to describe God's control over the world. Right? God's rulership over the world. God creating the world, not only just in space, but in time, right? God creating and sustaining and ordering the entire world, right? Um, Both of those words, providence and fate, describe that action, but they describe it from different ends, as it were, from different angles, right? When you think about it from God's perspective, from the perspective of the simplicity of God's mind, providence is the word that you use to describe it. When you look at it from the point of view of the things being governed within time, you call it fate. Fate right? So the will of God as it works itself out over time among created things is fate, right? But that same plan conceived in the simplicity of the divine mind is providence, right? Okay. Those are the basic um, those are the basic uh, uh, terms. No, Tony and Nick are both bringing up the question of deism. No. No. No, 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 no. No. These are not two different viewpoints. This is not a deistic viewpoint. It's a theistic viewpoint, but it's looking at it from a different, from two. Di- it's looking at the same thing from two different angles, right? Um, it's like. Well, hang on a second. I was just about to, to try to make a to try to make a comparison, but I don't need to make a comparison. We have Lady Philosophy for that. Let's keep it. Okay. It is easy to see that providence and fate are different if we consider the power of each. Providence is the divine reason itself, which belongs to the most high ruler of all things, and which governs all things. Fate, however, belongs to all mutable things, and is the disposition by which providence joins all things in their own order. Providence is the plan by which all things are going to happen. Fate is the working out of that plan in the lives and experience and bodies, right, of those finite things. For providence embraces all things equally, however diverse they are, however infinite. Fate, on the other hand, sets particular things in motion once they have been given their own forms, places, and times. Thus providence is the unfolding of temporal events as this is present to the vision of the divine mind. Again, the simplicity with which he sees the whole plan, at once, right, in which God grasps everything that's going to happen and every, everything that's going to be created and everything that's going to happen that is unified in the divine mind, that is his plan, that is providence, right? But this same unfolding of events as it is worked out in time is called fate. Although the two are different things, one depends upon the other, for the process of fate derives from the simplicity of providence. Just as the craftsman conceives in his mind the form of the thing he intends to make and then sets about making it by producing in successive temporal acts that which was simply present in his mind, so God by his providence simply and unchangeably disposes all things that are to be done, even though the things themselves are worked out by fate in many ways and in the process of time. Okay. The craftsman metaphor is a really important one here. Now again, this is it's not a perfect metaphor, right? Because no craftsman, howsoever skilled, has a completely unified uh, mind like uh, as as God does. Um, but the metaphor still kind of the the comparison still kind of helps, right? Um, an experienced craftsman says. I'm going to build a chair and the entire process, right? From like choosing the wood to forming the pieces to assembling them in the order in which they're going to be assembled and the finishing work for the chair and everything, all that stuff is in his mind. So when he says, I'm making a chair, right? All of that stuff together, unified is what he means, right? He knows what he means, right? He's got that whole plan in his mind. That's providence, right? Fate is that same process from the point of view of the wood, that is being made into a chair. And it sees one thing after another happening and it doesn't understand the plan. It doesn't understand it, right, that those particular planks of wood might not know that their fate is to become a chair. Right? In the mind of the craftsman, right? From from the providential standpoint, the chair's already there, right? Um, and not only the chair, but all of the steps that are going to lead up to the, the final production of the chair are all in the craftsman's mind in one unified point but to the wood this is a series not only of progressive events in time uh, right uh, successive temporal acts as uh, as lady philosophy says but also kind of mysterious right um the wood isn't going to get even if assuming the wood were sentient and uh perceptive it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't get it Necessarily, um, it uh, it kind of reminds me. And of course, this is true for an observer too, um, especially those of you of my generation. Though I, as I recall, these uh, uh, these bits have been preserved even for present generations. Uh, uh, my favorite segments in Sesame Street as a child were always those like uh, like the making of crayons in the crayon factory segments and stuff where like you follow the thing from what, you know, or, or like the, the piece of metal that's like slowly being shaped and in the end, you see what it is. Right. Um, I always, uh, I always loved those, uh, those bits. Um, And I I think they I think they still use the same old segments uh, in uh, the modern day, uh, the modern day Sesame Street. Um, But it's like that. Right. I I remember as a child watching this process and often I couldn't guess, like, what is this thing going to turn out to be? And It's like, oh, like it's an I-beam or whatever. Um, You know, it's a beam that you'd use for building. Okay, I I see now how that was shaped. Um, I don't remember the apple cider one, Nick, but I can totally believe it. uh, and Laura, I think they did the same kind of thing in Mister Rogers' Neighborhood as well. But I definitely remember the Sesame Street segments. Um, but uh, oh, sorry, sorry, Jennifer says the steel beam one uh, uh, terrified her for some reason. Sorry, Jennifer, I did not want to, I, I, I don't want to stir up uh, uh, painful childhood memories there. But anyway, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? So uh, that's again my experience as a child watching those things was totally temporal, right? It was that was that was fate, right? Uh, watching fate unfold. And the victim of fate, right? I mean, it just it's, it's a thing that happens. This is the plan being worked out in time. But providence is the original plan, right? When the craftsman looks at the lump of metal and says, I beam, right? I'm going to make it happen. Um, that's providence. Um, and yes, as several of you are pointing out, and as certainly as I think of all the time, I think that this same thing is, we, can, we see this happening in the I Know in the Definitely, the music of the Ainur is the playing out of uh, of things over time, right? Um, well, there, there's a, there's a way in which Tolkien kind of plays with it in a couple different ways, right? On the one hand, the conception of Iluvatar uh, that he plans and that he propo- you know that he propounds in his initial themes are like providence as well. Which remember when uh, Melkor messes with the music. Uh, And it doesn't seem to come out like it was supposed to. Remember what Iluvatar says to him and says, nobody can alter the music in my despite. Right. Like he it's not like he had to improvise. Right. Uh, Iluvatar saw that all coming because he had the providential vision. Right. And the music of the Ainur playing out the story of history is like fate. Right is like that plan being worked out over time, which is of course. Then Tolkien adds that sort of separate level, right, where the where the music of the Ainur itself is like a sort of um, uh, not quite simple, right, but a sort of cliff notes version of the playing out of fate over time. The music of the Ainur itself uh, acts like fate upon the unfolding of the rest of history. Um, so uh, uh, Tolkien adds a really a really neat um, sort of extra level. Uh, uh to that in there. Um anyway, uh but I, I don't want to get too deep into uh uh discussing the Annalindale. But again, you can th- that that same basic relation between the concept of providence and fate. Uh you can see working out um working out there. Yes, no, it shan't it shan't work. I know some of you are deliberately trying to goad me into uh detailed Annalindale discussion. Uh but that's an application, uh not a direct discussion of our text here and we got plenty uh, to work through here, so let's uh, let's carry on. But but do you see you see what we're getting at, right? You see that this this fundamental distinction between providence and fate, super important, right? Super important. Um, okay, so uh, let's um, let's keep going. So okay, so so this is two ways to think about the mind of God and the relationship between the mind of God and stuff, right? Providence, the plan, fate, the enactment of the plan upon the stuff in time. Okay, fine. So what? Right? Like, uh, uh, how is this practically useful? Right? Um, She says, therefore, whether fate is carried out by divine spirits in the service of providence, or by a soul, or by the whole activity of nature... By the heavenly motions of the stars, by angelic virtue or diabolical cleverness, or by some or all of these agents, one thing is certain—providence is the immovable and simple form of all things which come into being, while fate is the moving connection and temporal order of all things which the divine simplicity has decided to bring into being. It follows, then, that everything which is subject to fate is also subject to providence, and that fate itself— is also subject to providence. So there is, in this sense, a causal relationship between providence and fate, right? Just as the plan in the mind of the craftsman is, in a sense, the cause of the actions that he then performs in time, right? Because he sees the chair that he wants to make and he sees, uh, at the same time, the process by which he can get the chair out of that pile of wood. Um, he th- Therefore, the plan... The actions, right, the set of actions, fate, the thing that happens to the wood, uh, is caused by providence, by his plan. Um, providence is the immovable and simple form of all things. Fate is the moving connection and temporal order of all things. Okay, here, there she's just sort of repeating the definition, reinforcing that. But there's a really important new element here, right? Temporal order of all things which the divine simplicity has decided to bring into being. Why do things happen? Why do things happen? Why does anything happen? Because Providence planned it that way. Providence, the plan in the divine simplicity, all events, not just some events, all events are part of the providential plan of of God, all events, which the divine simplicity has decided to bring into being. So back to that first sentence, therefore, whether fate is carried out by divine spirits in the service of providence, like the planetary intelligences, for instance, or by a soul, like by you or me, or by the whole activity of nature. By the heavenly motions of the stars, by angelic virtue or diabolical cleverness, or by some or all of these agents, one thing is certain. Providence is immovable, while fate is the moving connection. Right? Providence and fate are happening. So, we're not just talking about, like, miracles, like God intervening in some way. Right? All the things. All the things. All the things done by everybody. There is no kind of event that Lady Philosophy exempts from this list, right? Uh, whether it's on the highest level, right? Planetary intelligences ordering things in the world, right? Which happens. Everybody knows that. Um, or a thing a person decides to do. Or by the whole activity of nature. So if you say like, oh, no, no, that doesn't happen by anybody's choice. It, it just happens. Right, like a a totally natural event, right? Which you can, which you can, which you can place. So, you know, the question of like, okay, I mean, think about all of those, um, you know, movies and stories and things where someone is like, you know, was that was that a ghost or no? I'm sure there's a natural explanation, right? okay doesn't matter right doesn't matter it all has a cause right whether you you can convince yourself that it has a perfectly natural explanation but guess what whether that thing event was caused by a supernatural being like an angel or a devil or a planetary intelligence or whether it was caused by a person whether it's orchestrated by a person or whether it was just the result of natural processes right just the way the laws of nature as we call them seem to work all oh, of those things are the result, are part of, are perceived and conceived within the simplicity of the divine plan, right? Those are all providence which are being enacted through fate. So all of those things, planetary intelligences, people, the entire sum of nature, angels, devils, everything, right, are agents of fate. Everything comes from the first cause, Brandon, exactly. Uh, Xenia says, is this predestination kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Jennifer says, but what about free will? Good question. Isn't it? <laughs> right. Uh, spoiler. We're not going to get to it tonight. Right. But that's going to be Boethius's final question as Boethius, the Boethius character is going to, don't worry. We're going to get there. The Boethius character is going to be like, yeah, but, but, um, uh, free will. What about free will? Yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to get there, but not tonight. Um, uh, is the heavenly bodies of stars a reference to astrology, Tony? Absolutely, in a sense. Um, that is to say, in the Middle Ages, we were pretty convinced that uh, the stars, in fact, impact. Well, okay. The planets impact things. The wandering stars, a.k.a. the planets, uh, because they've got planetary intelligences in planetary intelligences in them, who are like really high-level angelic beings, and they do have a certain exercise influence upon the world, right? So they've got jobs, right? Delegated jobs, kind of like the Ainur, uh, quite like the Ainur, almost exactly like the Ainur in some ways. Uh, they're delegated authorities, right? They've got They've got some supervision over stuff that happens, uh, you know, here on Earth. Um, so can we? Uh, so, so Tony, do, do things happen because of the influence of 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 the 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 planets on us? Oh heck yeah, right. Everybody knows that, right? What's more, Tony, there was a theory that God's providential plan itself is mapped out in the fixed stars, right? So that if you knew how to interpret them spoiler you don't but if you did know how to interpret them you could read the providential plan uh, in uh in the stars um so did they believe in astrology definitely but within this generally within this kind of um uh sort of generally philosophically christian context um uh Say see, James asks, so is, is fate cast in stone or is it just whatever happens on the path to providence? Um, well, no, it's it's cast in stone. Simplicity of the divine vision, right? At the, at the moment of creation, right? When God created the world, it, he didn't just create the thing. He just, like, create the world and, and let it go. He had a plan, right? Simplicity of the divine mind, the entirety of creation, meaning in time as well as space, was 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 uttered by God in that one moment, the, his simple plan of providence, right? So, yeah, he knows all things, and he knows it absolutely certain, right? Because it's all there in the unified plan, right? In the simplicity of the divine mind. Um, so in that sense, is fate carved in stone? Absolutely it is right you're not going to you're not going to catch the divine providence on the hop it's not going to happen just like with the luvatar right it's not going to happen he sees all things in one unified existence that's the significance of providence good yes lots of people worried about free will i get it i get it yeah it's a concern it's a concern um all right Yes, and of course, those of you who are referring to the Eldila, to C.S. Lewis's Eldila uh, in his Space Trilogy, absolutely, yes, the Eldila are planetary intelligences. That's Lewis's uh, 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 sort of fictional imagination of of the medieval view. He didn't make up any of that. Even the qualities that he ascribes to Melacandre and Perelandra and Glund and all the rest of them, especially that scene uh, when the gods descend in that hideous strength— um, that's straight out of the uh, medieval worldview um, <laughs> Stephen cover says read Lewis's space trilogy for more exactly exactly um, uh, okay um, let's see uh, um, is the name of Mercury Vera trilbia am I am I remembering that rightly I think it is um, but anyway uh right, sorry. Um oops, spoilers, sorry, lady gun, I apologize. <laughs> I just started reading Lewis's Space Trilogy. Yeah, it's uh um uh, never mind. <laughs> I didn't give away too much. Uh yeah, yeah. Um Um Yeah, no Vera Vir- is Mercury and um yeah, no, that's not the frog people. Uh that's uh something totally different. Um yeah, the fifth Triggy. Exactly. Those are the those are the froggy people. Um, okay. Sorry. Anyway, but I'm not going to get distracted on that either. Um, so, so we see the practical relationship. And yes, again, those of you who are worried about free will, you've got it in one. You're you're thinking in exactly the right ways. For now, let it be. Right. We'll come back to it. She's not going to leave that aside. Um, but so 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 try to stop worrying about that and focus on the implications of this whole concept of. Providence and fate, and the relationship uh, between providence and fate. Okay. She's going to spell out some of the implications. Therefore, the changing course of fate is to the simple stability of providence as reasoning is to intellect, as that which is generated is to that which is, as time is to eternity, as a circle to its center. Fate moves the heavens and the stars, governs the elements in their mixture, and transforms them by mutual change. It renews all things that are born and die by the reproduction of similar offspring and seeds. This same power binds the actions and fortunes of men in an unbreakable chain of causes. And, since these causes have their origins in an unchangeable providence, they too must necessarily be unchangeable. So does this mean... That the actions of humans are predestined? Yup, absolutely it does. Right, uh, the same power that has created the nat that ordains the natural order and binds the natural order to act in a particular way, right? Reproduction and you know all of the cycles of life and everything else, right? Um, that same power binds the actions and fortunes of men in an unbreakable chain of causes. Now for a second, glancing back at where we started this discussion, Boethius is saying, why why, why is there any randomness? Right? Why should there be any random fate? That shouldn't happen! It doesn't. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. Everything that happens. So all those misfortunes, the turning of fortune's wheel, not random. None of it's random. Okay. Uh... Okay, in this way, things are governed perfectly when the simplicity residing in the divine mind produces an unchangeable order of causes. Okay, do this again. In this way, things are governed perfectly when the simplicity residing in the divine mind produces an unchangeable order of causes. This order, by its own unchanging nature, controls mutable things which otherwise would be disordered and confused. So things left to themselves would be disordered and confused. There would be chaos, right? That's what would happen if not for the fact that behind all things was the perfect simplicity of God governing perfectly all things, right? The nature that God's own simple nature is unchangeable, and therefore so is the chain of of causes that goes from him, the first cause, the first mover of all things, through everything that happens for any reason at any time in the history of the world. Um, Rachel says, is fate the same as love, since love causes all things? No. When we're talking about love, right, love makes the world go round and all that, right, that love is the mechanism by which uh, God governs all things. Um, that's like saying, let's see, this is going to be no, I'm going back to my craftsman Discussion right using Lady Philosophy's craftsman metaphor, thinking about my uh, my expert woodworker and the chair, right? Okay, so if uh, the process of the craftsman shaping the wood into a chair is fate, right? The plan being worked out over time. Love isn't the same thing as fate. Love is like, you know the tools that he uses. It's like his, his hammer, right? Um, well, hammer's not a good illustrator because he's not going to be using a hammer a whole lot in the making of a chair. Um, but you get the point, right? Like the tool that he uses uh, in order to shape the wood is like love, right? So it's operating... So, so love and fate are in that sense uh, uh, sort of on different levels philosophically. Um, love is the mechanism in that sense. The actual instrument that God uses to shape things to make things happen. Right. Um, but, um, uh, fate is the description of that entire process. You see what I mean? Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Nick fate is a name for the, for the phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I hope that, I hope that helps. Um, okay. All right. Um, Ah, so Brandon says, so how does this square with God being good? That is, if we have all this stuff again, but remember, Boethia, that's exactly where Boethius started, right? But, like, why does this injustice and stuff happen? Um, you're right, Brandon, that in one sense, the this argument that Lady Philosophy has been making, that we've been covering tonight, might seem at first to make it worse rather than better, right? So, okay, so so he's like, all right, so God's in control, right? But, like, stuff seems to be messed up, so how does that work? And, and she responds by saying, okay, let's make one thing perfectly clear. God is absolutely inalienably, unchangeably in control of absolutely everything. Okay. Show me where that starts helping, right? That does seem to make the problem worse rather than better. Doesn't it? I think that's an absolutely fair. Um, uh, I think that's an absolutely fair, uh, 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 observation, right? Um, so let's, uh, let's give her a chance, Brandon, and we'll see where she takes us with this. Okay. Let's go back to the problem of evil. See, Brandon, you're exactly anticipating Boethius here. But, you ask, now again, Boethius doesn't even, the Boethius character doesn't even interject here, right? Lady Philosophy anticipates his objection. But, you ask, what worse confusion can there be than for the good to enjoy prosperity and suffer adversity, and for the wicked also to get both what they want and what they cannot bear? Again, the problem is not that like, things are upside down. The problem is that things are messed up. Things are random, right? Some good people get good stuff and some get bad stuff. Some bad people get good stuff and some get bad stuff, right? Um, how can there be a worse confusion than that? If it were just opposite world... Right, where bad people always got good stuff and good people always got bad stuff, then maybe we could say, "Oh, see, no, there is order. We just we're just wrong about it, right? We're just we we just we you know you turn it upside down and it's all it's all fine, right?" Um, but no, it's not like that. It's just confused. Now, here she addresses it. But is human judgment so infallible that those who are thought to be good and evil are necessarily what they seem to be? if so why are men's judgments so often in conflict so that the same men are thought by some to deserve reward and by others punishment and even granting that someone can distinguish between good and evil persons can he like the doctor examining the body of his patient look into the inner temple of the temper sorry of the soul the problems of such judgments are similar for for, uh, for, it is a mystery to the layman why some healthy persons find sweet foods agreeable, others sour foods, why some sick persons are helped by gentle treatment, others by harsh remedies. The physician, however, does not find such things at all strange, because he understands the nature of sickness and health. Now, what is the health of souls but virtue, and what is their sickness but vice? And who, indeed, is the preserver of the good and the corrector of the wicked but God? the governor and physician of men's minds who looks into the great mirror of his providence and knowing what is best for each one causes it to happen here then is the great miracle of the order of fate divine wisdom does what the ignorant cannot understand notice where she starts with here right uh to kind of you know to paraphrase lady philosophy in the words of the princess bride oh look who knows so much right uh who are you to say like even the like the basic statement why do bad things and good things happen to good people and she's like hang on why are you so confident that 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 does happen right it's premised upon the fact that you know for sure who the good people are and who the evil people are and what's more that you know for sure exactly what they do and do not deserve. Are you sure? Can you really be sure? Do you know that for a fact? Pause a little bit. Exactly, Carita. People are complicated. I know, right? It's like kind of mind-blowing. Um, remember, a while back... Um, When we were first, I know this was, gosh, what, like class two or class one even? Eh, Probably class two, I think. Um, We were talking about evil people and good people. A couple of you were complaining that that was really pretty simplistic, right? And I asked you to kind of be patient and wait that it was going to get better, right? I remember I said she deals first with these sort of philosophical abstractions, right? In a sense, she wasn't yet talking about real people. She was talking in abstraction. So let's just think first about the concept called a virtuous person and a concept called a wicked person. And she talked about those as if they were diametrically opposed to each other and also absolute, like this guy is completely good and that guy is completely wicked. Right. And she was doing that in order to consider the concept, um, that impulse that we have as modern readers is a very modern impulse, right? To say and, and that, that, that we're trained to think that way, right? Hang, hang on a second. You can't just use objective terms like that. You can't just call that person good and that person wicked, right? It's totally more complicated than that. And of course that's perfectly true. But think where the normal kind of modern chain of thought leads to, right? If we start off, if that's our first reaction, Right. If Wild Lady philosophy is in the very first stages of saying, let's think about good and evil. Let's think about what, like, people deserve and what people desire and all that stuff that she was doing. Right. Back in talking about fortune and talking about the goods of fortune and uh, and uh, and you know the desire for happiness and all that stuff. Um, if she had instead just said, like, so this whole concept of like good people and bad people, pff, totally subjective. Right. Uh, totally oversimplified, um, not really relevant, then what? We just end up kind of throwing the concepts out the window, or rather we end up not really thinking about the concepts themselves. What Lady Philosophy does is say, okay, hang on. 1st think about these concepts, right? If you don't think they imagine that they exist, right? Let's f- think first about these ideas in a pure sort of philosophical state. Then, having thought about those things and the implications of those things and what it means and having uh, 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 sort of seen what sense all of this makes, now let's return to what is admittedly and obviously a much more complicated practical situation, right, in which, no, we never find pure good and pure evil in any person, right? Some people are always a mixture of one or the other, right, of both, right? Um, and what's more, not only can, not only do we not, um, uh, uh, can we not, you know, sort of distill that out, right? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde accept it. Um, we, uh, we are often wrong, just flat wrong. We think that somebody is 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 virtuous when they're not virtuous, right? We can't know any of that stuff. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave Lady Philosophy, Right where that leaves Lady Philosophy is saying, okay, first of all, we, we, we can't know for sure who's good and who's bad. We can't see what the balance of good and bad is. But God can. It's not hidden from God. Right? God sees all these things and notice what she immediately goes to. The metaphor, the very important metaphor, um, which is really the central metaphor of this entire section, the, this whole bit uh, in Prose 6, the core of this whole section, I believe, is this metaphor of God as doctor, as God as physician, right? Um, she immediately goes to that comparison, right? So, okay, so um, people get confused, right? People don't understand. Your doctor makes a prescription, it doesn't make any sense to you. um. My wife is a physician, and it's that one of the struggles of her professional life is trying to convince people that Antibiotics are not the solution to every problem. I mean, a lot of people who don't understand how the body works, and that's fine, right? Um, and this happens Difference. This is not a class thing. It's not a level of education thing. There's a lot of confusion about this kind of thing. You know, there's this kind of general concept that antibiotics are like the magic elixir that makes you better, right? Uh, so try and convince somebody who has a viral illness that an antibiotic is not going help and might indeed in some ways long-term do harm um, is an uphill battle, right? Because if you don't understand, as as, as Lady Philosophy says, if, if, if you know they, they don't understand the nature of sickness and health, it's not going to make any sense to them, right? But to one who does understand, um, it does make sense. So now notice that um, notice that she is doing two things at the same time. First, there's that question of perception, perceiving who is truly good and who is truly evil, and the balance of good and evil in every person, right? Um, So there's that inability to perceive that we don't... But it's more than just that. With her doctor metaphor, she takes it to the next step as well. It isn't just that God can perceive who is good and who is evil, and how the good and evil is intermixed in everybody. He knows what to do about it. He is like the doctor, right? Right? He can not only diagnose the good and evil and the mixture of good and evil, but he can prescribe. He knows how to treat it. Notice how this is going to come back around to the problem, you know, Brandon, that you were raising and that she was just anticipating that you would be raising, right? Um, How is it that a good God can be in charge, in absolute control, of the events of a world where things seem to be so crazy and chaotic, right? Her answer? Because we don't know, man. It seems pretty crazy. When uh, uh, even malicious, right? When there you are and your kid is really sick and you're trying to convince the doctor to give the kid the medicine so the kid can get better. And the doctor keeps telling you, no, I refuse to give your kid the medicine, right? It doesn't make any sense, right? Because you don't know the nature of health and sickness, right? Um, And the doctor does know her implication here already, and she's going to spell it out more later, but her implication here is all of that, th- what looks to us like random fortune, right? Just good stuff, bad stuff happening randomly all over the place. It's not random. We just don't understand the purpose uh, that it is being applied to. Um, And yes, Josiah, I absolutely agree. Josiah says uh, the um, how... How important it is, thinking you know uh, often the uh, uh, Josiah says often the metaphor that is used of God uh, in this context is God as judge, right that God can judge between the good and the evil and he, and but lady philosophy is uh, he again Josiah emphasizes the significance of the fact that lady philosophy chooses not a judicial image but a medical image right uh, it, God is not about condemning the evil, God is about treating the evil, and that is clearly. Uh, crucial element of Lady Philosophy's argument and her entire conception of providence and of fate here. Um, yeah, Stephen, I agree. That's another great metaphor. Stephen uh, Cover says that uh, uh, for. Th- those of us who work with computers trying to ex- explain things to non-technical folk. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, Steven, I'll use my, my, my dear wife as an example again, she's one of those non-technical folks. Right. Um, so to her, it just looks like witchcraft. You know, she's always saying like, I did exactly the same thing and something different happened. I don't understand why. And it's like, well, exactly because you the conditions were in fact not identical, although it might've looked identical to you. Right. Um, so, um, uh, so, so yeah, exactly. If you don't understand the nature, right. Of, uh, of the, the software involved, then it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to make any sense to you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, um, <laughs> okay. All right. um. Yeah, so Brandon says, I really like uh, the idea that God is handcrafting remedies depending on the person. Exactly. It it recasts the problem showing God is taking uh, a lot of care when dealing with evil. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's, uh, look at her explanation for how this works out a little bit more. Take, for example, the man so fortunate as to seem approved by both God and men. He may actually be so weak in character that if he were to suffer adversity, he would forsake virtue on the grounds that it seemed not to bring him good fortune. Therefore, God, in His wise dispensation, spares the man whom adversity might ruin, so that he may not suffer who cannot who, that he may not suffer who cannot stand suffering. Another man who is perfect in all virtues, holy and dear to God, may be spared even bodily sickness, because Providence judges it wrong for him to be touched by any adversity at all. So there are some cases in which God allows good things to happen or to carry on happening to people. Why? because God who can see things and knows the nature of sickness and health right and knows how to treat things deems that it is best right um why does this you know, why does this one person that that she points to there at the beginning why uh um why does everything seem to work out really well for that person? does it mean that he is like intrinsically awesome and God is just like approving his awesomeness? no it might mean the opposite. It might mean that he's weak, and God knows he can't handle it, so he doesn't give him what he can't handle. Gentle treatment for that one, right? He does not put him in a position where he knows, providence, got the plan, knows what's going to happen, right? Knows that he would fail. God's not going to put him in a position where he knows he's going to fail. So, yeah, doesn't do it. So, there are some people to whom good stuff happens, right? It often happens that supreme rule is given to good men so that infectious evil may be held in check. To others, providence gives a mixture of prosperity and adversity according to the disposition of their souls. She gives trouble to some whom too much luxury might spoil. Others she tests with hardships in order to strengthen their virtues by the exercise of patience. Some people fear to undertake burdens they could easily bear, while others treat too lightly those they are unable to handle. Both types are led on by providence to find themselves by trials. Some have earned worldly fame at the price of glorious death. Others, by not breaking under torture, have proved to the world that virtue cannot be conquered by evil. No one can doubt that such trials are good and just and beneficial to those who suffer them. So when bad stuff happens, is it just random badness breaking out? No. It's not, but now notice a couple different things here. One, we still have God as the physician of that individual person, right? Um, uh, Looking at the the middle here, some people fear to undertake burdens they could easily bear. The people themselves, it's not just that we can't judge other people. We can't judge ourselves, right? We don't know our own selves. Um, So there are people who they're afraid that they can't bear something. God knows in his providential plan that they can. Bear it, right? But they don't think they can. Others treat too lightly burdens that they're unable to handle, right? They think they can handle it. God knows they can't, right? Providence, by distributing prosperity and adversity appropriately to those people, like the physician prescribing the treatment, right? Both of them, what do you say, are led on by providence to find themselves by trials right? They are put through tr- which push them, right? And teach them to learn about themselves the things that they uh, uh, th- the things that they didn't know, right? Again, so that's how the treatment works. But wait, there's more. It's not just the treatment for the it's not just about the treatment for the individual people because, of course, that's not how the world works, it's not that simple. That is, this isn't, you know, the whole scope of history and the, 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 the parceling out of prosperity and adversity to different people and different measures and at different times is not a one on one transaction between God and each of those individual people in isolation, right? That's not how it happens. There are other people involved. There are always other people involved. Anytime prosperity or adversity is dealt out to anybody, it affects many, many other people. Right? As, for instance, when supreme rule is given to good men so that infectious evil may be held in check, for instance. We know that sometimes wicked people are put into positions of power. Sometimes good people are put into positions of power. Seems awful random, shouldn't it? I mean, if, you know, again, you know, back to the original argument that he's making, that he was making at the end of last time. And she says, it may seem random because we don't get it, because we can't see. Can't possibly see. We can't even judge this in the heart and mind of one person, even ourselves, right? Much less can we understand the chain of causes that's going to 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 ripple outwards from any one act of any one person, and how it's going to affect everyone else around them. But you know what? Providence sees all those things, right? So why, in this one place, does a good man achieve supreme rule, right? It may be that there was some infectious evil that needed to be held in check, right? That many, many people would have suffered terribly had that not happened, right? Um, and the suffering of those people would have had other, you know, again, ripple effects and on on everybody else, right? But it is part of the divine plan. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna quell that, right? So we're gonna give for so. So can you think about that that one event, right? that one event of supreme rule being given to that one particular good man in that particular time and place right and it has an effect on him that is personally calculated to suit the state of his own soul right by the divine physician but also of course that one action has an impact on everybody else in the kingdom right and that fact is part how that good ruler acts towards the people involved in the infectious evil or the people who would have been victims of the infectious evil, right? All of those people and how they are impacted by the acts of the good man who is put in power there are all also part of the individual plan that the providence had for those individual people, right? All of those, the entire chain of causality perceived simultaneously in the simplicity of the divine mind, all of this stuff is foreseen and works together. So, uh, the the point is the divine physician thing doesn't just apply to the individual soul. It also, or, or you know, it's it's also about how everything affects everybody else as well. Um, okay. Okay. Um, Tomás, no, Boethius does not forget the book of Job. Uh, Lady Philosophy is very cognizant of the book of Job. Lady Philosophy's favorite part of the book of Job, however, is what God comes in and tells Job at the end, which is the really crucial thing, right? Um, When God comes in and says to Job at the end, after Job has been voicing... I mean, Job and Boethius really, really, really should be read together. I mean, they're both dealing with the same thing. Why does... why does bad stuff happen, right? Why does bad stuff happen to good people? That's what that's what Job is concerned about, right? Um, and remember, Job's friends are all saying, oh, they don't, right? Bad things don't happen to, 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 to good people. Therefore, you must be bad. Bad stuff has happened to you, so you must be bad, so cough up, Job, right? Come on, just confess, just confess, right? And he's like, no way, man, like, it's fine. Like, I'm good. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so... Yeah, but what's the answer, right? What's God's response at the end? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe? If you can explain all these things that I'm going to go on for like four chapters describing, if you can explain all these things, then we can talk, right? Um, and that is what Lady Philosophy is saying, right? God's providence conceives all of these things. God un- God perceives all these things, and he understands how they all fit together. Do you, right? Nah, Job didn't really understand right? How could he? Nobody really understands. To us, it looks random. It looks completely messed up. And Lady Philosophy says, it's not. It's not. Uh, God is the physician. Um, okay. Um, (laughs) Karita <laughs> says, speaking from experience it doesn't make a suffering person feel better to be told, it's because God knows you can take it. Uh, just if anyone is wondering if that's a good tactic I hear you, Karita. and the thing that I would say here, remember this isn't what Lady Philosophy said either right? Rem- there's a reason this is happening at the end of book four of this book and remember Lady Philosophy's uh, uh, gentle treatment and stuff at the beginning, right? Uh, Lady Philosophy doesn't—there are, are good reasons why Lady Philosophy doesn't jump to this, right? This is not—because uh, in, in in essence, you, you remember, she's answering the very first question he asked. This is the direct response to book one. But it took her until here to get there, right? So even if you're taking the Lady Philosophy approach, which, Carita, I agree— is not the best way for everybody. Not everybody is going to be ideally consoled by lady philosophy, right? Uh, uh, that's just not the approach that everybody needs in every circumstance, right? you've got to know the nature of sickness and health, right. And, and, uh, how to treat different kinds of people in different kinds of circumstance. Uh, but even if, uh, a, a little dose of, of, of lady philosophy is what the person does need. Lady philosophy doesn't jump there. Right. So yes, the, uh, that kind of, I, 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 uh, I rather agree. Um, Xenia is wondering about foreknowledge and predestination. Great question, Xenia. We'll get there. Book five. Book five. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Several of you are thinking about it's. uh, several of you are being reminded of various C.S. Lewis passages? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely yes. Uh, uh, there is, um, uh, if you go through the works of C.S. Lewis and, you know, highlight in a particular color when he's, uh, uh, when he's, uh, coming back to, uh, a Boethian concept, you'll, you'll paint a lot in that color. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Sorry, lots and lots of comments. I'm trying to I'm trying to stay ahead of them, um, and I've, I have to. It's particular. I mean, I, As you guys know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't usually pause so carefully to read over all the comments when a whole lot come in. I just, I know, and I always say I can't, I can't always get to them all. But this is some deep stuff that we're in right here. And I wanted to make sure, again, thinking back to the sort of apology slash, uh, 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 you know, uh, request for clemency that I was asking for at the beginning about knowing that this stuff touches on some really sensitive nerves and, and some really painful experience for a lot of people, possibly very present experience for a lot of people. Um, it's, um, I, I I'm, I'm sort of more leery than usual of just kind of skipping over people's comments. So I'm sort of reading with a, a little bit more thoroughness, uh, than I am want to do in the middle of, uh, uh, of, uh, of class. Um, Let's see, uh Laura asks a great question about um where uh Paul in the New Testament talks about not being tested beyond what you can handle, right? Not not being uh tempted uh beyond uh what you have the strength to resist, that where God provides a temptation, he always also provides a way of escape. Uh and she's asking, is this uh is the is you know, is is what Boethius is talking about similar to that? Uh you know, is that is that is that the same kind of thing? Um in a sense, Laura, yes, in that, again, Paul is alluding there to the idea that God can perceive, not only perceive, but judge appropriately, right? Um, can can measure appropriately what to give to all people in all circumstances. So in that sense, yes, absolutely. Uh, Lady Philosophy isn't exactly talking about temptation here, but temptation certainly does come into it I mean again if you think about that passage there in the middle about others treating too lightly those that they are unable to handle right um, you know it's talking about burdens there um, not temptations but again I think the the a, a similar thing kind of um, uh, uh, comes in right like uh, just sort of knowing knowing what's good for you and knowing what you can handle God God knows um, so so Laura it's not that she's saying exactly the same thing um i guess i would say lady philosophy is saying sort of a larger thing of which that particular teaching of paul would be like a subset of this if that if that makes sense um yeah yeah um yeah exactly exactly okay um yeah, some of you are talking about addressing. I think that uh, that idea about the chain of causation, right, about one thing happening leading to another, but all of this being uh, sort of part of the um, part of the part of the plan. Kay is talking about sort of the the link of causation from you know me getting handed a copy of The Hobbit when I was eight years old to you know, the founding of Signum University and the community that we've built at Signum, yeah, they're directly causally related, right? But, of course, uh, I never could have seen that coming, right? And the the, the, the the great good fortune that fell upon me, right, in the lifelong love of Tolkien that I discovered, right, which I would have considered and do consider a personal blessing, right, um, has, of course, also had, you know, an impact, I hope, on the large, on the whole positive uh, on uh, on many other people. Um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Carita says thinking of Job, we should probably also file uh curse God and die under the category of bad advice. That yes, uh, Job's wife. That's uh never really been a role model. Uh uh that one could recommend with uh uh with any confidence. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's carry on. Moreover, more illustrations along the same kind of lines. Moreover, the lot of the wicked, which is sometimes painful and sometimes easy, comes from the same source and for the same reasons. No one wonders at the troubles they undergo, since everyone thinks that is just what they deserve. Such punishment both deters others from crime and prompts those who suffer it to reform. So again, again, notice how she's explicitly addressing that question of it's the the... the, the the, the thing that happens, right, the providential plan, the uh, the the manifestation of fortune as we look at it or think about it, is calculated uh, to fit the state of the person, but also providence is considering the effect on others, right? Okay, so let's so imagine a wicked person again, right? And some good stuff happens and some bad stuff happens to them. When bad stuff happens to them, nobody's surprised, right? Everybody thinks it's just what they deserve. And good things can come of that, right? Punishment both deters others from crime and prompts those who suffer it to reform. So it can have a good effect on others in deterrence. It can have a good effect on them, right? In prompting them to, on, on, on the, the, the wicked person in pro- prompting them to reform. So the bad stuff that happens to them, if they get their just desserts, that's good, right? On the other hand, prosper- the prosperity of the wicked is a powerful argument for the good, Because they see how they ought to evaluate the kind of good fortune which the wicked so often enjoy. So what about when good, when evil people prosper? Well, that's good too, right? Good comes of that as well. What good comes of that? It causes us to rethink the goodness of wealth and good fortune, right? Remember all that stuff that we were looking at back in Book two and three, right? About the goods of fortune, and not being deceived by those, not being tricked into thinking that uh, that the goods of fortune are a real home, right? Um, well, seeing these good things coming as a reward to people who manifestly don't deserve them helps, right? Helps us to have that moment where, although we might still be like, you know, the man who's drunk as a mouse, uh, still when we, you know, might, we might knock on the door and say, oh, wait a second. Hang on, this actually is not my house, right? And we might turn around and keep looking. Um, uh, Anyway, still another good purpose may be served by the prosperity of the wicked man. If his nature is so reckless and violent that poverty might drive him to crime, providence may cure this morbid tendency by making him wealthy. When such a man recognizes his viciousness and contrasts his guilt with his fortune, he may perhaps become alarmed at the painful consequences of losing what he enjoys so much. Right so it 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 could have a good effect on the person as well. Again now notice Lady Philosophy isn't saying this is what always happens to everybody. The whole point is everybody's different. But she's saying like here is one possible way in which it could happen. Her only argument is is against oversimplification. She's not making an oversimplification. She's arguing against it, right? So you can't look at happy rich wicked people, right? You know, you can't look at those people who have gotten wealthy by stepping on the necks of other people and just say something really simplistic, right? You can't just look at it and be like, see, that shows that everything is unjust. No, because you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen, right? And here's an example, right, uh, of a thing that could happen, right? Um... Brandon yeah I was just thinking a similar thing Brandon's saying this is perfect for people who think that uh, Tolkien is too simplistic yes people reading Tolkien make the same kind of mistakes all the time Uh, mistaking his characters for totally good or totally evil and thinking that his story is a really simplistic black and white story it's really not um yeah yeah um Good. Yeah, David Atley says, uh, uh, sees the echo of Tolkien later on in the same paragraph. It is the divine power alone to which things evil are also good. Um, yeah, we're going to get there, David. But yes, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about that sometime. I don't know what else to say about that, but let's talk about that sometime. Um, uh, Yes, yes. Um... Yeah, again, Brian, um, Brian has said this seems like a rather optimistic hope for the wicked. Yeah, again, she's not saying, and this is how it works. Like, this is like, this is the key. She's just throwing out examples, right? Illustrations of how it can happen. Why you can't oversimplify. Why you can't say bad people, if, if the world were just and orderly, bad people should get bad stuff and good people should get good stuff. And she says every, literally every single step of those statements you're talking about what you don't know about, right? You don't know who's good and who's bad and nobody's totally good and totally bad, right? It's a balance of each. So it's way oversimplified from the beginning, right? But even to say good things that you do should receive a good reward and bad things that you do should receive punishment is an oversimplification because that's not always how it works. That's not in every case with every person going to be what is calculated by a good physician uh, to bring about... The positive, the most positive result, right? So, again, it's all of so. So again, it's an argument against oversimplification, and she's just sort of throwing out illustrations about how why you can't, um, why you can't overgeneralize uh, like that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Nick says, so no karma then. I, I mean, I don't want to go. To karma, because that whole, I mean, I don't want to take the concept of karma totally unjustly out of its whole philosophical context, Um, but certainly a common, um, the common Western conception of karma. Exactly. Yeah, is saying karma is, is such a misunderstood word. I agree. I, I don't understand it myself, but I understand enough to know that it's very generally misunderstood and misused, but thinking only of the kind of bastardized Western version of karma, right? That idea that like what goes around comes around, right? And if you do bad stuff, you'll get paid out for it. That's the same kind of oversimplification. I mean, it's based on exactly those same kinds of oversimplification, right? That concept, as it's articulated so often, it, it delays the temporal demands for punishment, right? Um, that's, it's, it's kind of a way around it by saying, okay, like, I, I'm okay with the fact that like, bad people don't get their just desserts right now as long as they get them eventually, right? As long as what goes around comes around sooner or later, it's okay. Well, okay, sure. But that's still the same oversimplification in the end. You're just deferring it. Um, and Lady Philosophy is arguing against that entire concept. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, exactly, Kate. Kate says, and we've just spent many books realizing that what the world may call good is only, at best, a fraction of the real good. Yes, only a piece of it taken out of context, often. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Like I said, I'm not addressing, like, the actual doctrine of karma. I'm, I'm just I, 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 referring to that one very common uh, Western usage of it. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, Rachel asks a great question. So is it possible to determine if someone or some act is wicked? Does this mean that it is impossible to make judgments as humans? Yes and no. Do I think that this means that, like, You can't actually have any applicable concept of good or evil. No, no, I don't think that at all. Again, that's why she didn't go this go here right away. Uh, You know, she acknowledges like the concepts of good and evil and the basic sort of premise of, you know, so that, yes, like there are such things as virtues and vices, and those are objectively uh, those objectively exist, that there are good ways to act and there are bad ways to act but what she does insist upon Rachel is that a we can't categorize people with any confidence because even the people who seem to be good people by the definition of good that we hold um even again even assuming that definition of good is accurate and objective um it might not really be true right they might be fronting right we don't know what's actually in their hearts um so, so again, first, we can't really. So, the place, Rachel, where it's impossible to make judgments as humans is on the souls of people because we can't see the souls of people, right? So, she, Lady Philosophy does say that is impossible, inappropriate for humans to try to make judgments on the souls of other humans. But, um, she also says it's impossible for us to understand all of the implications of a thing, right? So, if we look at what happens if we look at the consequences of an action? It's easy for us to leap to a conclusion and say, well, that sucked. Like, evil came of that, clearly, right? Did it? For everyone? Always? Do you know what's going to happen as a consequence of that 20 years from now? Right? Uh, Can you... uh, No! We don't know. We can't know. Right? So, in in that way also, we can't we can't evaluate again it's not about evaluating people's actions morally or you know or, or 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 you know good versus evil but saying um a thing that happened was good right or 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 bad you know um, again I shared at the beginning of class that someone in my family was just diagnosed with cancer literally hours before I began the first boethius class that's an example right it's a it's very natural, right? Uh, very tempting to look at that and say, "Well, that's bad right that's This is not a good thing. This is clearly a bad thing that just happened. This is a piece of ill fortune that has occurred to us. Um, is it? Can we know? Are we sure? how is it going to impact the life of the person diagnosed? How is it going to impact the life? of the the lives of the people close to the person diagnosed. How is it going to uh, end up impacting other people totally unconnected yet? Right? Ten years from now. um, We don't know. And we can't judge that. So, Rachel, that's the other way in which Lady Philosophy is asserting that it's impossible for us to make judgments as humans. Because we can't see all those causes. God can. Simple Simple mind of God, the unification of providence perceives all of those things and how they work. Um, yeah, okay. Um, all right, good. Um, so let's, uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. I'm at risk of uh, not finishing my slides after just having boasted about that. Okay, from this condition, the highest providence often brings about the miracle by which the wicked make other wicked men good. For when they find themselves unjustly persecuted by vicious men, they burn with hatred against them and return to the practice of virtue because they cannot bear to be like those whom they hate. Only you know, So, like, a person who tends to be a bully might, upon being bullied by somebody else, realize how much that sucks and cease to be a bully themselves. So the wicked action of a wicked person to them brings about goodness right brings about conviction and change to virtue in that case right um only to divine power are evil things good when it uses them so as to draw good effects from them so does god make bad things happen yeah yeah god makes bad things happen all the bad, all the good fortune all the bad fortune in the world part of the providential plan right why because god doesn't care because god isn't good no because uh he uses them so as to draw good effects from them ultimately the plan the whole picture is good we can't see it right we can't see the whole picture we can't even see a significant piece of the picture indeed we can't even truly see any of the picture because everything, every bit of the picture that we do see, we're only seeing in bits and not seeing how it fits together, um, and not even really perceiving its uh, its true nature. Right. So, um, yeah, all things are part of a certain order, so that when something moves away from its assigned place, it falls into a new order of things. Nothing in the realm of providence is left to chance. Nothing in the realm of providence. Is left to chance. Okay. Um, Let's keep going. Thus, and this is in the poem now, mind. So we finally have come to the end of the prose. It's time to refresh ourselves with some poetry again. Right, Um, and this is, uh, I didn't do the entire poem, this is the last three paragraphs of the four that Green renders the poem in. Uh, The first one is about the order of the heavens, right, about how the moon and the sun stay in their spheres, right, and everything goes around in harmony. Thus, mutual love governs their eternal movement, and the war of discord is excluded from the bounds of heaven concord rules the elements with fair restraint moist things yield place to dry cold and hot combine in friendship flickering fire rises on high and gross earth sinks down impelled by the same causes the flowering year breathes out its odors in warm spring hot summer dries the grain and autumn comes in burdened with fruit and then falling rain brings in wet weather all of the cycles of the world, all of these things—hot and cold, wet and dry—all of the different seasons—are all elements of the plan. All, you know, different—to to use a, a different metaphor—all different colors, right, on the palette of the painter who is painting the picture, right? Um, there's another providence and fate metaphor right? Providence is that vision that the artist has in their mind that they're trying to get onto the canvas. Fate is the actual application of the brush. There you go. Who was it asking about love? That's a, that's much better than the hammer, right? Love is the brush that the painter uses uh, to apply the paint uh, onto the canvas. That's a much better metaphor for love and its relationship to fate, whereas fate is the entire process of painting. Anyway, but the point is, all of these things are colors on God's palette. All of these things and, you know, hot, cold, wet, dry, life, death, things we call good fortune, things we call bad fortune, all of these things are colors in God's palette, which he puts together to make an overall good picture, even if we cannot always see its goodness, because how could we possibly, given that we are tiny, tiny little specks who can barely see, you know, it's like, um uh you know, a uh, uh, pointuist painting, right? The uh, painting with all those, uh, you know, made up of little dots, right? If we're so small that all we can see is one tiny little dot, how can we possibly expect to understand the painting and the role that that dot has, and you know, plays in the larger, uh, in the larger painting as a whole? Anyway, okay. This ordered change nourishes and sustains all that lives on Earth, then snatches away and buries all that was born, hiding it in final death. Meanwhile. The Creator sits on high, governing and guiding the course of things. King and Lord, source and origin, law and wise judge of right. All things which he placed in motion, he draws back and holds in check. He makes firm whatever tends to stray. If he did not recall them to their true paths and set them again on their circling courses, all things that the stable order now contains would be wrenched from their source and perish. He not only keeps everything ordered, he not only structures everything, um, notice that itself is described as being good. It's not just that he sets them in a good direction, right? But his ordering is itself good. If he didn't, if God didn't order things, um, everything would be wrenched from its source and perish. He recalls them to their true paths. The good physician treating souls, right? Right this is the common bond of love by which all things seek to be held to the goal of good only thus can things endure drawn by love they turn again to the cause which gave them being all right um yeah yeah um good um exactly timothy yes uh, uh timothy points out the business about him maintaining all things in their path uh, emphasizes how this is not deistic. Yeah, exactly. I didn't get into it before, uh, but that's why I was saying no, 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 no. We don't think about providence as a deistic thing. It is absolutely it's like the opposite of that. Um, uh, deism being the idea that God creates things and then let it go and doesn't interfere with it anymore. That's a really, really, really crude uh, uh, a version of deism, but just to give the basic concept of what deism means. Um uh, Lady Philosophy is saying as 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 something as hard to the opposite of that. Uh, I think as you can as you can possibly make um, uh, God as Lady Philosophy describes him is about as undieistic as any uh, description I know of. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. Let's keep going. After this, prose seven of book four is the really interesting moment where Boethius comes back and says, Hey, can we turn this into like common language? Right. Uh, I, you know, he's like, I get all this, but no one's going to believe us if we talk this way. Right. So let's think about this from a, from the human point of view. Uh, and we, you know, she goes through the similar argument about all fortune being good fortune and everything being calculated for the good, um, and talks about it in sort of simpler ways which are more tied uh, to human examples here's sort of the some the the conclusion of that bit a wise man ought not to regret his struggles with fortune any more than a brave soldier should be intimidated by the noise of battle for difficulty is the natural lot of each for the soldier it is the source of increasing glory for the wise man it is the means of confirming his wisdom Indeed, virtue gets its name from that virile strength which is not overcome by adversity, and you, who are advancing in virtue, should not expect to be weakened by ease or softened by pleasure. You fight manfully against any fortune, neither despairing in the face of misfortune, nor becoming corrupt with the enjoyment of prosperity. Hold fast to the middle ground with courage. Those who fall short or go too far are scornful of happiness and are deprived of the reward of labor. You can make of your fortune what you will, for any fortune which seems difficult either tests virtue or corrects and punishes vice. Now, Pause for a second to notice how completely mind-blowing this is. When Lady Philosophy says, okay, let's think about this again from the human point of view. We've been talking from, like, about providence, right? And God's perspective on things all the way through here so far. So let's talk about it from the human point of view. Look where she gets to, right? You fight against fortune, neither despairing. Hold fast to the middle ground. Those who fall short are, you know, are, are, are... what you can make of your fortune, what you will, you can make of your fortune, what you will. Well, that sounds pretty um pretty free willish, doesn't it? When she talks about this from the human point of view, she's talking about like what you do matters, like what you decide matters, right? Uh, 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 that it's up to you to fight against fortune, that it matters. Whether or not you understand that it matters what your attitude is to fortune and to what happens to you. She speaks as if that matters, as if you can change your fate in some way. You can make of your fortune what you will. That's pretty explicit, right? Jennifer, yeah, you can decide to take your medicine or not. Seems that way, right? When she Again, when she comes back around to the human point of view, she, uh, she comes straight back on that she's not going to explain that right now, right? Um, uh, but she's not going to leave it behind. This is, again, her acknowledging there's an issue here, right? And, uh, uh, the, the Boethius narrator is eventually going to, uh, going to come around to it. Um, now, almost done. We're finished with book four. That's the end of book four. Um, starting in book five. Uh, I was tempted to just stop there, but I wanted to do this one because there's going to be plenty to talk about when we get to free will and predestination next time. Um, This time I wanted to end with the one, because there are two sort of primary clarifications, two sort of corollaries to the teaching that she's just been giving. In a sense, she's done. Lady Philosophy has addressed the why do bad things happen to good people. The good physician metaphor is the answer. OK, that's that's Boethius's answer to this question. And by the way, as I have said before, I find Boethius's answer to the why do good things happen or why do bad things happen to good people question. His, his answer to the problem of evil is the most satisfying one that I know of. Um, he's given his answer. Right. Lady Philosophy has given the answer. But there's still unfinished business. Right. The unfinished business is still with the two, prim- two primarily- primary correlations that come up, two-, two questions that the answer raises that are really disturbing. One is the big one that you guys have wanted to get to and which we're not going to get to today. What about free will, right? But there's another one which he starts with, and I wanted to get that out of the way now, and then we'll, 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 uh, we'll do free will next time. And that is, what about chance? What about luck? We all talk about that. What does that mean? When philosophy had finished her song and was about to turn to the discussion of other matters, I interrupted by saying, Your exhortation is a worthy one, and your authority is great, but I know from experience that you are right in saying the question of providence involves many other problems. I should like to know whether there is any such thing as chance, and if so, what it may be. I have been trying as quickly as possible to carry out my promise to show you the way back to your true country. These other questions are somewhat beside the main point of my argument, even though they are quite important in themselves. I shouldn't want you to become so wearied by side trips that you were not able to complete the main journey. She's a little concerned, right? Um, but she's going to do it anyway, right? Um, by the way, uh, you, get, uh, you get geek bonus points if you can, uh, without looking it up, recognize my quotation there, which is my, my subtitle. Anyone recognize that? Um, if chance this is, this is lady philosophy again. If chance is defined as an event produced by random motion and without any sequence of causes, if that's what we mean by, by chance, right? Then I say that there is no such thing as chance apart from its use in the present context. I consider it an empty word for what room can there be for random events, since God keeps all things in order? The commonplace that nothing can come from nothing is true, and the old philosophers never denied it, though they did not apply it to the effective cause of things, but only to the material subject, is a kind of foundation of all of their reasoning about nature. But if anything should happen without cause, it would seem to come from nothing. And if this cannot be, Chance, as we defined it a moment ago, is impossible. Nothing happens for... Everything has a cause. Everything has a cause. Nothing just spontaneously happens. Can't occur. Can't occur. Doesn't make sense. It's not Gandalf, though it sounds like something Gandalf would say. It's not Obi-Wan Kenobi, though it sounds like something Obi-Wan Kenobi would say. Jennifer... You're right. It's from C.S. Lewis. It's from C.S. Lewis. Um, the hermit of the marshes in *The Horse and His Boy* says to Erebus, "My child, I have lived a hundred and nine years in this world, and I have never yet met any such thing as luck." Uh, anyway, so if for some reason uh, that d- that that the hermit saying that popped into my head when I was uh, uh, looking at this slide. So okay. Technically, right, literally chance, meaning a random event, nothing is random. So in a sense, we can see the answer to the question pretty clearly based on what she said about providence and fate. Right. Uh, the fact that nothing has no cause. There is nothing that exists outside of the providential plan of God. There is nothing that, you know, God looks at it and is like, whoa, holy cow. Who, where did that come from? Right. So in that sense, no, there's no such thing as chance. um uh, but she does acknowledge that there is a way in which we can talk about chance. the, the con- it's, it's not like we have to stop using the word chance entirely, right? We can still talk about chance in a sense. And here's the sense that she says it's kind of okay to talk about chance. Whenever anything is done for one reason, but something other than what was intended happens on account of other reasons... It is called chance. For example, when a man digs the earth with the intention of cultivating it and finds a treasure of buried gold, this is thought to happen by chance, right? Pretty lucky, right? There you are plowing. Your plow hits something, and it turns out to be a box of treasure, right? Wow, right? It's your lucky day. There's a bank error in your favor, right? Excellent. Okay. Um, But it does not come from nothing, since the event has its own causes. It's not truly random, right? Right? There's a reason you found the treasure. Why? Because you were digging in that field, and there was gold in that field, right? And the gold was there for a reason, right? So there's causes you can trace the chain of reasoning all the way back, right? It does not come from nothing, since the event has its own causes, whose unforeseen and unexpected concurrence seems to have produced an effect by chance. For if the farmer had not dug the ground, and if someone had not buried his gold in that spot, the treasure would not have been found. Those are the causes of the fortunate accident, which is brought about by the coincidence of causes and not by the intention of the one performing the action. Right. So, yeah, to the farmer plowing in the field, it's pretty random box of gold in the field. Right. Stroke of fortune. But it's not random. Right. So often the unintended, unforeseen consequences of actions uh, bring about events which seem to be which we call chance from the point of view of, as Chaucer liked to say, the high tower of providence, right? Chaucer, uh, in, um, uh, in his translation, uses that metaphor of a high tower, um, where providence is like one who sees the whole land from a high tower, and fate is like when you're walking through the land yourself, right? Um, uh, so anyway, so from the high tower of God's providence... Uh, there is no such thing as chance. But in our own day-to-day experience, because we cannot see the chain of causes that leads to stuff, things look pretty darn fortuitous. Um, For neither the man who buried the gold, nor the man who was cultivating the field, intended that the money should be found. But as I said, it happened coincidentally that the farmer dug where the other had buried the money. Okay, so that is how chance really worked. Um, Yeah, exactly. You find it, uh, uh, as Nick points out, you find, you find the ring because Gollum dropped it, right? Uh, the finding of the ring by Bilbo being a, an unintended, a a fortuitous event, uh, certainly not intended either by Gollum or by Bilbo, uh, but, uh, random? Nah, nah, probably not. Um, probably not. Um uh yeah, Tony says, How does this relate though to the way that luck is treated in the Hobbit, where luck is treated like a personal possession? Well, Tony, the main thing that I would remind you is that Bill was wrong to think of it that way. That's the point that Gandalf makes at the very end, right? Um it's these all these events were not uh uh organized for his personal benefit, <laughs> right? Um uh, he's a very fine person, and Gandalf is very fond of him, right? But he's really a very small person in in a wide world. Um, exactly, yeah. He's uh, so uh, he he does seem to think of luck as something. You know, he is he is the luck wearer, right? But he doesn't actually wear luck. Um, and we can see uh, the Hobbit is a, provides illustration after illustration of this kind of luck, right? Um, notice and and not to mention that not to mention that also providence in the way that uh, Lady Philosophy was describing in Book Four right? Think of all of the things in the hub, and I've made this argument lots of times and make it in my book, um, that think of all the... T- Every time something catastrophic happens to Bilbo and the dwarves, right? It turns out not only to be not a disaster, getting waylaid by goblins and take... Remember, there's the one good path you can count on, and Gandalf and Elrond know the one good path, so they go up the one good path, and then they get taken away from the path because they're kidnapped by goblins, right? And so they end up going out the back door and ending up in a totally different part of the wilderness than they meant to be in, right? But they find out later that that path actually sucks and wouldn't have gotten them to where they needed to go. So it was pretty lucky in the end. It ended up being a stroke of good fortune that they ended up where they were, right? And the same happens with Bjorn and his path, right? It seems like a pretty terrible stroke of bad fortune that they end up kind of almost starving to death and then leaving the path and getting kidnapped by spiders and then by elves and and lose their whole path. But of course then the narrator reveals to us that had they stayed on the path, had they obeyed Gandalf and, and Beorn's injunctions not to leave the path that path would have uh, ended up dumping them into the bogs, and they would have been, uh, would have been unlikely to survive and make it through. So, in the end, as we learn at the beginning of chapter ten, they arrive at the Lonely Mountain by the only good path, which happens to come out the barrel hatch of the Elven King's Hall. is the only way that they could have ended up getting through Mirkwood. So, um, the uh, uh, Tolkien gives many examples of this stuff which appears for very, very good reasons at the time to be a stroke of bad fortune, which turns out in the larger providential plan uh, to be, uh, in fact, uh, a uh, a blessing, a stroke of good fortune. Um, it doesn't make it less uncomfortable. It doesn't take away from the fact that almost starving in Mirkwood really sucked, right? Getting captured by goblins was truly terrifying. Uh, They were in real danger, and those were bad experiences. But, in the end, it's those things that took them on the one path that Providence had laid out for them, bringing them uh, right to where the Thrush was going to knock at just the right time. Um, The fact that luck, as it is mentioned and uh, sort of deployed throughout The Hobbit, is, um, is really... Tolkien's uh, treatment of providence—providence providence in really exactly the way that Boethius describes—was one of the one of the core arguments I was trying to make in my Hobbit book. Um, yeah, um, yes, Brian. Brian says chance or luck is about the disconnect between your purposes in doing something uh, and the purposes that providence has in causing certain events to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah. So she gives a new working definition of chance. Therefore, we can define chance as an unexpected event brought about by a concurrence of causes which had other purposes in view. These causes come together because of that order which proceeds from inevitable connection of things, the order which flows from all from the source which is providence and which disposes all things each in its proper time and place. So yes, everything is part of the divine order, but when we don't understand the causes and we don't see how they fit together and it seems to happen serendipitously to us, we still call it chance. So we can define it an unexpected event brought about by a concurrence of causes which had other purposes in view, right? Okay, that we can call chance. Um, and so I have uh, I <clears throat> already talked about The Hobbit as an illustration of that, but I couldn't resist doing one other this is Gildor and the Fellowship of the Ring. Now you should be grateful, for I do not give this counsel gladly. The elves have their own labors and their own sorrows, and they are little concerned with the ways of hobbits or of any other creatures upon earth. Our paths cross there seldom, by chance or purpose. In this meeting there may be more than chance, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. Gildor is recognizing that he's in a Boethius Book 5 situation here. Right? Uh, he didn't he wasn't searching for the hobbits. His meeting with the hobbits was by chance, by Boethius' definition, right? Unforeseen by either one of them, right? Um, but fortuitous, right? Very lucky that they happened to meet each other just then, when, you know, the Black Rider was sniffing his way towards them through the underbrush, right? So that, was, that worked out pretty well, right? Gildor recognizes this. Our paths cross theirs seldom, cross the paths of other, children, uh, other creatures upon the earth seldom, by chance or purpose. So sometimes our paths cross them on purpose, like we go to seek out other people. We don't do that often, but it happens sometimes. Sometimes our paths cross by chance, like today, right? When we were just walking this way, and you were just walking this way, and a black rider just happened to be pursuing you, and we all came together at the same time and place for reasons unforeseen by us, right? in this meeting, there may be more than chance, right? He's like, mm, but uh, there's, there's. so it's not just luck, right? Don't consider this a random thing. It's not a random thing, but the purpose is not clear to me, and I fear to say too much. One of the reasons why Gildor is so chary about giving advice is he doesn't understand. He knows. He's read Boethius, right? He knows what he doesn't know, he, he, On the one hand, he recognizes there's no such thing as chance, right? This, this didn't happen randomly. It couldn't be more obvious to Gildor that this meeting did not happen randomly. But he doesn't know why it happened exactly. He does not see the causes. For what reason? What is the place that this meeting has in the larger plan of providence? He doesn't know. And he knows that he doesn't know. So he's like, I'm not going to act as if I do know what I don't know, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, and Evan is noting the fortuitous chance he had just been thinking of this passage and was just talking about it, and then I had a slide on it. So, right, exactly, by chance, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so again, we can see this, This you know, the all, everybody you know all of the passages that 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 uh, you know so many of you guys like so much uh, and have uh, quoted on several occasions here in the comments here tonight about this you know chance if chance you'd call it and all that stuff all the references to luck, all the references to chance uh, in Tolkien all of them, all of them I mean every single one of them I think uh, come back to this passage in Boethius um, are really, uh it it is in his treatment of luck and chance where i think that tolkien's thought is most purely boethian there are other places like you know when we talked about the einalindale and and the way that he's kind of playing with these concepts of providence and fate there it's derived from the conceptions there in boethius and that basic terminology he's 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 sort of playing with and considering those concepts but it's not like pure boethius right The chance of chance you call it stuff is absolutely pure Boethius. Exactly this kind of, uh, what was it that she said? Concurrence of causes which had other purposes in view, right? Um, That's exactly what is happening pretty much every time that um, uh, we see stuff happening by luck. And once you begin to see this, you can see this all over the place in Tolkien's writing, even when he doesn't explicitly draw attention to it right think about the abduction of merry and pippin right and them being so you know, gandalf does draw attention to this one right them being swept across rohan and brought to a place where they never meant to go just in the nick of time to rouse the ents and help bring about the fall of isengard right um providence's plan being played out through seeing fate happen right seeing the 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 order of providence coming about but the people involved not understanding, right? They don't understand the causes. They don't know what's going on. It's all in Boethius. What do they teach in these schools, Brandon? I completely agree with you. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. All right. And that's me getting through my last slide again. Uh, excellent. Very good. So next week is the big one, right? Week seven, our last week on Boethius, we're gonna finish the book and we're gonna do the free will question, right? Um, so uh, we will come. So join us next time uh, when we ask Lady Philosophy. But wait, how can the choices of human beings actually matter in shaping their destiny if everything is all predetermined by the foreknowledge of divine providence? See you next week, and we'll talk about that. And as I, 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 Boethius's answer to this question is the best answer that I know of. Almost everybody else who addresses this problem just dodges it. Boethius addresses it uh, in, I think, a really, really interesting and really compelling way. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.